What is going on with these Ed Oliver and DeAndre Hopkins rumblings? We're exploring that and some herd mentality items today on Locked On Bills. You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino, author of Go Bills and Buffalo's Run, also the co-host of the Locked On NFL Scouting Podcast, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. I want to thank you for making Locked On Bills your first listen every day, and please be sure to subscribe or follow for free on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Well, folks, it has been... I guess a crazy 24 hours here as the rumblings have heated up regarding Ed Oliver and DeAndre Hopkins. And so I'm going to share some thoughts on that to open up our conversation today. And then we'll get two segments of herd mentality items in to close out this podcast. So Ed Oliver, DeAndre Hopkins, a lot of smoke. A lot of smoke on social media recently. And I want to start with Ed Oliver because I think Ed Oliver being moved would be necessary for the Bills to bring on a DeAndre Hopkins. So Ed Oliver playing this season under his fifth-year option. He's got a hard cap hit of $10.7 million. The only way that that can be reduced is either through an extension or by trading him. Otherwise, it's fully guaranteed and a hard number. And so he's always been the most obvious trade chip if the Bills were to look at a trade this offseason. And so when you consider the Instagram activity, of late for Ed Oliver and the fact that he is the most obvious trade chip, you could start realizing that there's a chance perhaps he's going to be on the move relatively soon. And I'm not great at interpreting cryptic social media messages from athletes. That's certainly not my wheelhouse. But you can definitely look through it and convince yourself he's getting ready to be traded. And Adam Rank of NFL.com makes a tweet about him potentially going to the Bears. So we'll see how this all goes. But whether it's a pick swap in Ed Oliver, you move from where you're picking at 27 to where the Bears are picking at 9, And you can welcome yourself to the top 10 and perhaps draft either the first wide receiver, potentially defensive line help. Maybe you trade up and then trade back. There's enough smoke here for us to have a conversation about it. Now, obviously, if you trade at Oliver, it leaves an even bigger hole at defensive tackle where I already think there is a hole. Right now, you 
have Daquan Jones, Ed Oliver, and Tim Settle, and that's about it. So you still need that fourth guy that's going to play a fair amount of snaps, but then you also don't have any defensive tackles that are signed beyond this season. So it's a, a current need that becomes a bigger need if you were to trade Ed Oliver. Now, it's not like you're going to trade Ed Oliver and say, good luck, Tim Settle. That certainly wouldn't be what happens. The Bills would do something meaningful at 3-Tech to have a replacement. And I know it's hard to piece all that together when you don't know, but you could be assured that the Bills aren't just going to try to figure it out at 3-Tech. So if they trade at Oliver, you could assume something else would happen. So we'll see. But there's enough smoke there for me to commit the opening minutes of this podcast today to discussing it. Now, the dot to connect here is DeAndre Hopkins, who we've long believed will be traded this offseason. It makes a lot of sense. The Cardinals are a, a team in transition. They fired Steve Kine, the general manager. They fired Cliff Kingsbury, the head coach, not even a year after they gave them like five-year extensions. And their roster is just a mess. I mean, it's a mix of veterans, young players, and holes. Very much a team in transition from a roster perspective, from a leadership perspective, from, you know, Kyler Murray's going to probably miss most of the season with his ACL injury. So moving on from DeAndre Hopkins makes a lot of sense for them. And yesterday on the Lockdown NFL Scouting Podcast, Kyle Krabs and I, we did an entire episode on DeAndre Hopkins developing a trade package, who the suitors can be, that entire situation. But for the sake of this conversation about the Bills and potentially trading for him, I want to focus on that situation a little bit more. So DeAndre Hopkins, 31 years old. Last season, he missed the first six games due to a performance-enhancing drug suspension, and then he played in nine games. It was pretty good when he first came back from suspension, and then obviously the Cardinals' season just fell off the rails. Kyler Murray gets hurt. It just becomes a mess. Colt McCoy's in there trying to play quarterback. It was it was not good. But in those first few games back, Kyler, or excuse me, DeAndre Hopkins looked like DeAndre Hopkins. Best hands in the league. Very crafty technician as a route runner. Knows how to find leverage, attack the football. He's a good player. I thought his tape looked really good last year from the three games that I watched two days ago. Now, in 2021, he played in 10 games because he tore his MCL and was put on IR late in the season. So he's 31 years old, and in 2022, he missed eight games, and in 2021, he missed seven games. So that's a concern for sure, but the eight seasons prior to that, obviously he was a complete monster, one of the best receivers in the NFL. And Hopkins, with his deal in Arizona, had a full no-trade clause, which was voided with the PED suspension. I'm very interested in how his skill set ages. DeAndre Hopkins, never a premier athlete at the position. RAS score of a 494. How does his skill set age? He's 31 years old. I think he's a technician, hands. I think there's a lot of things that will age gracefully, but he's never been explosive. And 
that piece is only going to diminish. Does he have one, two, three more top-tier seasons? It's a question worth asking yourself. Right now, as things currently stand, the new team, the team that would acquire DeAndre Hopkins, would be on the hook for $19.5 million in 2023 and $15 million in 2024. If DeAndre Hopkins is DeAndre Hopkins, those numbers are nothing. That's a steal. The best receivers in the game right now are getting north of $25 million, some of them $30 million, if you're Devontae Adams or Tyreek Hill. So D-Hop at 19 and a half is, is fine. But in order for the Bills to absorb that, it would require other cap-cutting moves, which potentially is in that Oliver trade. That pretty much gets you close to where you need to be. You could still restructure a Deion Dawkins for about $6 million. You can restructure a Trey White. You can do extensions for guys like Micah Hyde, Taron Johnson. You have things you can do. There's levers you can pull. And as far as what it would take to give to get Hopkins, what you would have to trade, I don't think it's going to be much. I mean, you look at the Brandon Cooks trade, a five and a six. You know, Albert Breer reported that the original asking price was a two and then plus, you know, and some change, and they're coming off of that. And that makes sense. I mean, when you... Everybody knows you're going to trade a player and it makes nothing but sense to do it. And you want the cap savings for yourself. You know, they're certainly not trading Hopkins at the peak of his value. That's just not the case. So I think you can get this done for, I'm not going to say the Brandon Cooks trade, a five and a six, but a three, a four, something like that. A three and a six. I think you can pull that off. Now, there's some cautionary tales out there. This could be the Julio Jones situation all over again when the Titans traded for him, gave up a two and a four, and he didn't do a thing for Tennessee. I mean, there's certainly that possibility, and and over the last two years, there's plenty to be concerned about. And you wonder about roster balance, adding another big-ticket veteran north of 30 years old. There's stuff to think about here. And if you do it and you go win the Super Bowl, phenomenal, phenomenal. I I get very excited about Diggs and Hopkins and what the offense can look like. But at what expense, right? I'm not really concerned about the draft capital so much as I am the balance of the roster, adding aging players kind of moving away from your pipeline of young talent that's already underperforming, right? We've often talked, or I've at least often said, that the key to the Bills achieving their goals is going to be hitting on draft picks that can continue to replenish your roster. And I don't know that that's happened at a good enough clip to this point It hasn't happened at at a good enough clip to this point because if it were, I don't think the Bengals and Chiefs go further than the Bills last year. I think that was an example of how those teams have drafted better and their meaningful young talent has stepped up and allowed them to replace some guys that left, but also just adding to 
already talented rosters. And so now you would come off of that balance a little bit if you went all in on Hopkins. But again, I'm, I would be excited about it, but there's obviously concerns and there's multiple angles that you have to look at things through to get an overall picture of the circumstance. So this could all be a bunch of nothing, right? There's a good chance of that, but both of these guys' social media activity has been cryptic, suggests movement. You got Daniel Jeremiah coming out and saying that the number one suitor for DeAndre Hopkins is the Bills. Adam Ranks tweet about Ed Oliver in Chicago. A lot of smoke out there. And if there's something to talk about, we'll talk about it here on the podcast, but I had to at least commit a little time here today about the rumblings and then if news breaks news breaks and we'll talk about it here on the podcast but wanted to at least get some general thoughts out there right now as I know this is what everybody is thinking about all right folks some herd mentality is coming your way here in just a moment but first need to tell you about built bar the built march madness bracket is here we know you have a favorite bar or puff Now's the time to make it count. Go to BuiltMarchMadness.com to vote for your favorites. You know, I'm going to be voting for the Brownie Batter Puffs. And you got to go support your favorite bar or puff as well. So head on over to BuiltMarchMadness.com. And when you vote for your favorite bar or puff, you're going to be entered into a drawing where 50 lucky Lockdown listeners will get a free box of Built. Not only that, but one Lockdown fan will get a 12-month subscription to Built to have Built's best bars or puffs delivered straight to your door monthly. You got to try Built. Built is the best tasting protein bar ever. They're amazing. They're delicious. So many great flavors, healthy, great macros. You got to try them out. They're covered in 100% real chocolate and high in protein, low in sugar, and they are delicious. So head on over to BuiltMarchMadness.com right now to vote for your favorite bar or puff and pick up a box while you're there. You can vote every day in March. So hop in and support your pick. All right, let's get to some herd mentality items here to close out this podcast. The next one comes from, or the first one, I guess, comes from Don. Don says, I've heard Mel Kuyper Jr. and Todd McShay say several times that this is a weak draft compared to years past. I tend to agree with them. Do you agree? If so, did COVID have anything to do with it? I think it's so interesting to see what kind of impact the COVID years had on young athletes. It's a travesty how some of these kids lost senior years of high school sports or development time at the collegiate level. I would agree with the general statement that it's a weaker draft compared to years past. Um, I still think there's a lot of talent, a lot of talent throughout. I love the middle rounds. I think second, third, fourth rounds really going to be where there's some great value. Where I think you don't want to be picking is in the middle of the first round. I just think that's kind of no man's land. And I think the Bills picking towards the end of the first round, it's a, it's a fairly decent spot. But what I think contributes to this being a weaker draft is the COVID year, but not necessarily because the kids lost a year of playing time, whether it's high school or college. It's because with the COVID year, it gave the college players a free year of eligibility. And so a lot of them have used it. And because of that, it's set off the cycle. And so you have guys that have stayed longer than usual and therefore, it's throwing off the balance of these draft classes while you still have players that can use that COVID year as a free year of eligibility. So that I think just it's thrown off the balance a little bit. 
And then the other piece of it is NIL, NIL, name, image, likeness. These college kids are, a lot of them are doing quite well with these NIL deals. And some of them are making more than they would if they went to the NFL. So if you could stay in college and literally make more money than you will in the NFL, and some of these quarterbacks, these quarterbacks that are staying on NAL deals, they're going to get paid more next year in college than they're going to throughout the entire span of their rookie contract in the NFL if you're like a mid-round draft pick. So I think it's NIL and COVID. Those two things have kept more players in college and less from going to the NFL, and it's thrown off the balance of talent a little bit. So that's how I think it's all working together to make this a lesser draft than in years past. Joe says, I have noticed a lot of linebackers this year seem smaller, six foot to six one, around 230 pounds. Even Drew Sanders, who is six four, is light. Jack Campbell stands, I know you'll get sick of hearing his name this offseason, stands out with height, weight, and speed. Are college linebackers getting smaller and lighter to combat spread offenses? If so, how have you seen that affect the draft pools where the NFL, where in the NFL they'll also be expected to stand up to run heavy teams like Dallas and Tennessee? Is a traditional Mike linebacker disappearing? It's a good question here. The traditional Mike linebacker disappearing in the form of Ray Lewis or Jeremiah Trotter or LeVon Kirkland. Yeah, those guys aren't a thing anymore. You've got to have range to play in the NFL. You got to be able to get sideline to sideline. You need to be able to get coverage depth. You got to be able to turn, run, and carry with tight ends, close the distance on running backs out in the flats. You got to be able to run. And so I think that has naturally made linebackers smaller. Most of the linebackers right now are 6'1, around there, 230 pounds. Like that's a normal sized linebacker right now. Now, what's interesting about Jack Campbell is he's like 6'4", over 240 pounds, and he can run. That's why he's the very clean prototype to be a Mike. And to your point about being able to play the run and play downhill, yeah, you still have to be able to do that. But there's a little bit more space available in today's NFL to use your quickness to your advantage. And that's why having D-line play in front of these linebackers to keep them clean and uncovered is really important so it's all all of it adjusts together but yeah linebackers have been getting getting smaller for a long time now and if a linebacker 6'1 230 pounds and plays Mike linebacker I don't even blink an eye anymore to me that's normal the guys that are you know like I mentioned those names Trotter Kirkland, Ray Lewis, those guys, their time has passed. So it's about being able to run around and these leaner guys are are playing linebackers, guys that in the past were safeties. And you're seeing a lot of these bigger safeties actually convert to linebacker. So this is absolutely a thing. Matt says, can you complain how, excuse me, can you explain how Opposing offenses were able to tell what we were doing on defense because of how Taron Johnson was lined up. Also, do you think if we got more guys that can play multiple positions, that would help confuse offenses? 
so I don't I don't think that the that teams knew what the Bills were doing because of how Taron Johnson lines up. I think the the talking point here is the Bills don't really mix up personnel on defense. It's pretty much the same back seven all the time, right? Obviously they rotate the front, but your back seven's pretty much always your back seven. And because of that, it actually makes it less predictable. We've heard Bill Belichick talk about this when it comes to the Bills. He's like, they play the same back seven all the time, so there's no personnel tips. It, it, there's nothing that says, okay, if they bring in this safety and take this guy out, their tendency is to run this stuff. No, that doesn't happen with the Bills defense because it's always the same back seven players. So because of how Taron Johnson lines up, the Bills are less predictable because it's always the same back seven players. There's no tips based on personnel. Where other teams may, okay, we take out this linebacker and put in this safety, 86% of the time they run match quarters defense, whatever it would be. As far as your second part of the question there about getting more guys in the field that can play multiple positions to help confuse offenses, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. That was one of my big talking points when the Bills drafted Terrell Bernard was that they could become more multiple, using him as more of this hybrid slot safety overhang defender, but that really hasn't happened. And so for all the things that I talked about that made the Bills defense less predictable because of how they don't use a ton of different personnel groupings, perhaps you take that away from yourself by leaning into more of this position lifts type stuff. I don't know that I see the Bills really leaning into that anytime soon. Maybe that will change, but right now I, I don't I don't see that. I haven't seen them embrace that type of idea to this point. All right, folks, we got a couple more to get to here today, but first I do need to tell you about FanDuel. The tournament is heating up, and now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook, because new customers get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's bonus bets back if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to point scores and threes drained, and there's no better place to place your bets than FanDuel. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. So don't miss the chance to get your no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 in bonus bets back when you go to FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. All right, a few more to get to here today. The next one comes from CeeLo, who says, do you think we're seeing a shift in front office spending and roster construction in terms of cap dollars? We all know a Zeke Elliott deal will likely never happen again, but are you surprised the middle tier market hasn't really materialized for good, not great players? Not very many middle tier type deals. Plus, we're seeing very good vets move for day three draft picks and teams are just looking to get out of contracts. Wondering if you've got any insight into this. Are GMs beginning to adopt more of the stars and scrubs approach like the Rams pay your six to eight key impact players and fill the holes with young players and rookies and veteran minimum types. CeeLo, one of my biggest thoughts so far as I've studied free agency over the last couple of weeks is 
very much what you're saying is that there there just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of mid-tier deals. You know, it's it's definitely surprising to me. And I'll even use the Bills, some of the Bills players as an example. A guy like Dane Jackson. Dane Jackson, who has been a starter for the last year and a half, and I know that he doesn't have a ton of fans in Buffalo, but he's got a reasonable playing resume. He couldn't have went out and signed a two-year, $5 million deal. No, he got one-year minimum tight deal with the Bills, not even as much as his restricted free agent tender would have paid him. Damian Harris, one-year, $1.7 million. Same thing with Trent Sherfield. I mean, these guys are getting really, really small deals, and it tells me that their markets are small for them. And I think you're seeing this across the league, just a lot of a lot of minimum type deals for guys that have proven something in the NFL. Damian Harris, a 15 touchdown season in 2021. One year, $1.7 million. I think with the cost of quarterbacks, Daniel Jones is getting $40 million a season. With the cost of quarterbacks, teams are more calculated. And I think guys that are still young but have, and have proven something but aren't for sure impact guys, they're just getting overlooked right now. And I think everyone's trying to get younger and cheaper, younger and cheaper, younger and cheaper. Balance out your roster. And I think the vets, these vets are taking a hit. And I feel bad for them. I really do. Do you imagine kind of like going out and feeling like you've done everything you can for four seasons, you become – a meaningful player, and you hit the market, and it just ain't much for you. You're not actually making any more than you were on your rookie contract, in some cases less. So good players are still getting paid for sure. There's still plenty of money out there, but it really does feel like teams are being a lot more calculated with non-impact starters, if you will. I mean, just look at look at like safety and linebacker this year in free agency. What Jesse Bates got at safety, what Tremaine Emmons got at linebacker, and then what everyone else got. It's definitely there's definitely something to it here. Joseph says, I'm putting you in the booth as Ken Dorsey. What steps are you taking to make this offense more efficient? With Hines and Cook on the roster, will you be able to implement them into the passing game without taking away their big playability? of Josh's arm while also peppering Diggs with enough targets. If I if I were Ken Dorsey, I'd focus on three things. Obviously, I like a lot of the down-the-field passing stuff, but to complement that, three things. First of all, I want a run game identity. I think the Bills, for too long, Ken Dorsey, Brian Dable, whatever, the last three years, I think they've not been able to figure out how they want to run the football. A lot of trying zone, wanting zone to work, then leaning back into gap, and then trying to be multiple. I would establish a run game identity, and it would be rooted in using the athleticism of my offensive line. The Bills have perhaps the most athletic offensive line in the NFL, definitely in the top five. I would be tapping into that significantly as part of my run game identity. Number two is play action. Josh Allen had a 10% dip in play action this past year, and that bothers me a lot. I would be into the mid-30s 
in play action pass percentage of passing plays. Josh Allen is a phenomenal ball handler. Josh Allen is a very good down the field thrower. He has access to the entire field. He's athletic, has no issues turning his back to the defense and getting his eyes back around and getting him to the right spots and making throws. I would have a 33, 34, 35% play action rate. And we'd be, we'd be getting more into that for sure. And then number three, I would just look to push the easy button more. Not everything has to be progression style, read it, rip it. Doesn't have to be like that. There's, there's ways to, to utilize free access more, to use built-in leverage, to get the ball out of Josh's hands quicker in rhythm. I'm pushing that easy button a lot more. So it's those three things in addition to what I really do like with the vertical stuff and down the field and taking advantage of your big arm quarterback. But how you complement that is what's important. And I am using, I think the Bills have a lot of versatility with their skill players, especially now. And I am tapping into that. I am not going to be afraid to put guys in multiple spots. I'm not, I'm going to flex out these running backs. I'm going to flex out Dawson Knox. I'm going to use the blocking ability of a Trent Shurfield and a Gabe Davis. I've got multiple level threats in Diggs, in Shurfield, in Hardy. I'm getting Dawson Knox going a little bit more down the field in the seam. All that stuff would be things that I would think about a lot. We'll close with this one today from Johnny. Johnny says, I think I'm speaking for most Bills fans that I've talked to over the last couple of weeks, but it feels like the Jets and Dolphins have made a big leap forward during free agency, while the Bills have taken one or two steps back. Is this the curse of being a good football team where everybody wants your players? We're not used to this. Well, let's start with the Bills. I think the Bills got better at guard, the starting guard. They got better at wide receiver three. They got better at wide receiver four. I like the makeup of the running back situation better. Their safety should be better with Poyer back. Taking a big hit with Tremaine, I still think there's some work to be done on the D-line. I don't know that I look at the Bills and say they've taken a step back. Maybe incrementally better on offense. Some concerns on defense. They still won this division by, what, like four games last year? They won it three years in a row. And you would expect the Jets and Dolphins to be relentless in their pursuit to not finish second and fourth in the division again, right? You'd expect that. They've they've taken a lot of time to get the rosters to this point. Both teams have really tore it down in a lot of ways, had a lot of draft picks, have had a lot of cap space, and they're supposed to get better. I think this is just normal, right? Remember last offseason, the AFC West? All these teams are jockeying up to beat the Chiefs, and meanwhile, the Chiefs are trading away Tyreek Hill. Not a single person on the planet would tell you last offseason that the Kansas City Chiefs got better. But they went further and won the Super Bowl. Your continuity, your, your established culture, your established success, that matters a lot. And so while maybe the Jets and Dolphins have had a bigger influx of talent, they're still catching up from that perspective. And you still have 
achieved so much more as a core team that they've not tasted or come close to yet. And so I think this is just part of the deal when you're a three-time division champion in a row, you're going to see teams do things to try to narrow that gap. You saw this happen when the Patriots were on top of the division for 100 years in a row. It was this perpetual cycle of all these other teams trying to do aggressive things and add talent and change coaches, find new quarterbacks. But the Patriots are still the Patriots. And we're seeing it in the AFC West, and the Chiefs are still the Chiefs. And for the last three years, the Bills have been the Bills. Now we'll see what happens moving forward. you got to stay there. You have to continue to evolve your own operation and do what's necessary to stay on top. But I think there, there's naturally going to be points in time where, yeah, those gaps close a little bit and other teams get better because you got the target on your back and, and teams are in it to win. They're not in it to finish third and fourth in division all the time. So I think you have to take it in stride and just realize the overall picture here. And I mean, I think we knew last year that the gap had closed. What the Bills have won, like, however many in a row against the division. And last year, they lost one of the Jets with Zach Wilson at quarterback. They lost one of the Dolphins. Those games were a lot more competitive against Miami last year. All right, so now you have all the new information. You attack an offseason. Go see how it looks this coming year. Bill still got the best quarterback in the division, and it's not close. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I enjoy the competition. That's one thing I'll say. Like one that's different than me from me than a lot of fans is like I don't love the Patriots, Jets, and Dolphins. Like don't don't get it twisted. But I embrace the competition, right? I I, I enjoy seeing the team building strategies and seeing it all play out. So we'll see how Brandon Bean keeps building it compared to the rest of these guys and see if the Bills win their fourth straight AFC East championship. But I know I know that's empty to a lot of people. It's Super Bowl or nothing. So hopefully they could check that box and everyone can finally be happy at the result of a Buffalo Bills season. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us here today on the podcast and even perhaps this week on the podcast. If we get some big news, we'll come back for you. But otherwise, this serves as the Friday podcast. I just kept on putting these out as quickly as I can because the news, right? I don't know what's going to happen. And um, sometimes that sets off the timing a little bit, but I'd hate to sit on stuff and then news happens and now this episode's no good. So hopefully you can appreciate some of the challenges that I have in this seat uh, navigating a a busy time in in the calendar where the news comes in whenever it wants to. So uh, we'll be back if we need to, if we need to this week, but otherwise we'll catch up with you again on Monday. As always, I kindly ask that you share, subscribe, rate, and review. Have a great weekend. Go Bills. And I'll be back if news breaks and if not on Monday.